Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. And we've been looking at the book of Revelation not to try and pinpoint a date for Christ's return, not to try and figure out what each and every symbol in the book means, but in order that we might have certain comfort in the uncertain times we're living in, which is what the book offers to all believers living in these end times between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And today we come to chapter 19. We come to the end of the empire. Over the past several chapters, we've been seeing this conflict between the beast and the lamb, between the people of the beast and the people of the lamb. Uh, Last week we saw the beast harlot, uh, and today we start to see the first introduction of the lamb's bride. And we see this acceleration towards the end when the, the empire, the world system, uh, the beast, the dragon who is behind them will finally ultimately meet their end. And we are going to, to look at uh, chapter 19. And even as we go into the next couple of chapters, we are reaching the point where we really do get a lot of certain comfort. We find out how the story ends, who comes out victorious when all is said and done. And yet even in these chapters, there can be a lot that is debated, a lot of symbols that get us off track, and even in some ways that impact the way that we live the Christian life. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 19, and then we're going to look at three specific parts of this chapter that do give us certain comfort in these uncertain times that we're living in. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along as I read Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. 
He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. There is a lot going on here in this chapter, and as I said, a lot that Christians have debated, a lot that I think we're tempted to be pulled away by. And specifically, one of the things that often is taken from this passage is this image, as I've mentioned before in this series, of this bloodthirsty Jesus. Uh, and we, we project Jesus as this, uh, as this person who is coming down looking for blood. And we turn him into the kind of stereotypical, uh, cruel, vengeful God that so many people misread into scriptures. And that's not really the point of what's going on in this passage. And so uh, we are just going to take, as we've been doing, kind of the, the overview uh, from, from way up high, looking at the broad scope of this chapter uh, and the main points it's trying to bring out. Uh, that will give us certain comfort in the uncertain times. And the first is that both the world and the church will receive what's coming to them. Both the world and the church will receive what's coming to them. From the very beginning of this chapter, we see what we started to see last week and what we will continue to see as we move forward, uh, this distinction between the world's harlot and the Lamb's bride. And we see uh, how these two uh, figurative women are presented and what the differences are. Uh, And here we see it in the terms of both of them receiving what they have coming to them. We see the the harlot is called out uh, for her sexual immorality. Uh, that it says that God has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. And so once again, we see in chapter 19, like we saw in chapter 18, that God is judging this harlot. He is judging uh, the world system that has partnered with the beast for 
her sexual immorality and for shedding the blood of his servants, shedding the blood of the martyrs. And on the other hand, we see that the lamb's bride is is being finally dressed and, and being prepared for the wedding feast of the lamb. And so here we have these two groups of people uh, portrayed by these two different women who are being prepared for what they have coming to them. And this all centers around the one who is on the throne. And you see these uh, songs that are being sung before the throne, uh, ascribing salvation and glory and power to God. And as we've said earlier in the book, the songs throughout the book of Revelation kind of tell us what's going on. They're the Greek chorus for the book. And so here you have uh, the God being the focal point of this difference between the two women, between the, the beast's harlot and the lamb's bride. And so you see the beast's harlot being judged for her uh, sexual immorality, for her killing of the martyrs. And then you have the lamb's bride being finally uh, adorned with fine linens and being prepared for the marriage feast of the lamb. And what we see, however, is that the reward that the bride is receiving is not necessarily one that she deserves. And we might not necessarily think that because of how it's phrased, because she is uh, given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. And then it says, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And so it seems almost as though John is is, uh, juxtaposing the righteous acts of the saints with the sexual immorality and the murder of the harlot. And yet, the point of this is not how righteous the saints are. Again, the songs tell us what's going on and all the praise is being given not to the saints for their righteous acts, but to God who sits on the throne. And so the righteous acts that the saints are being wrapped in are not acts that they can take any amount of credit for. And there's two main reasons I think we can see that. The first is that their fine linen is bright and pure. And I think we're supposed to contrast that first with the, the adornment of the harlot, which we saw last week, where the harlot was very finely adorned to the point where John is taken away so that he doesn't start to worship the harlot. And then the linen given to the bride, it's bright and pure, but it seems very simple. There's no jewelry described. There's no fine, ornate uh, description of her clothing. It's bright and it's pure, but it's simple. And so this isn't the bride trying to wear all of her righteous acts. She's being given this to wear. Even as we saw in the letters to the churches where Jesus promises Uh, new white clothes for those who overcome. And so the fine linen in verse 8, she's given it to wear. It is not something that she takes up herself. It is not something that she is putting on, that the bride, that the church is putting on to make herself look better. It is a gift that she is given. And we see this not only in how it's contrasted with the harlot and the way the harlot dresses, but in the way it's contrasted with the way that Jesus 
is dressed when he shows up on the scene. And we'll look at this a little bit more in our next point. But when Jesus shows up, he wore a robe dipped in blood. And so you have Jesus' robe that is dipped in blood and the church's fine linen that is bright and pure. And I think we are supposed to see that the church's, that the bride's linen is bright and pure because Jesus's is dipped in blood. That is the blood of Jesus that has made the righteous acts bright and pure for the saints. That the church is wearing white because Jesus is wearing red. And so we see that uh, in, in the clothing that she wears, that this is not a reward that the bride deserves, but one that she is given. And then we're immediately given this little interlude that should be pretty surprising to us as we read it in verses 9 to 10, where right after the church, the bride of Christ, is given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, and it's described as the righteous acts of the saints, uh, an angel shows up, and John falls down to worship the angel. And you have John who is, uh, as we said last week, he, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was in that inner circle uh, with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, but if this is written in the, in the 90s AD, as we suspect, then he has been walking with Jesus after the resurrection for five, six decades. He has led churches. He has written books in the New Testament. And he sees an angel and he falls down to worship the angel. And the fact that this is put in immediately after the, the bright and pure linen are described as the righteous acts of the saints, I think it's supposed to tell us that our righteous acts are not our own righteous acts. That left to our own devices, we fall down and worship creatures constantly. Just like John is tempted to do here. It's only the angel who stops John. And as we said last week, uh, it's believed that the Spirit takes John away from the harlot because he's tempted to worship the harlot. The righteous acts of the church, the righteous acts of the saints are not our own righteous acts. They're Christ's righteous acts given to us. And so the harlot and the bride are both given what's coming to them. The, and it's what's coming to them based on whether or not they've bowed down to worship the one on the throne and the lamb who was slain. And so the world represented by the harlot is given judgment for her sexual immorality and her killing of the, the saints and the bride because she has fallen to worship the one who is on the throne and the lamb who was slain is given fine linen to wear. She is given righteous acts to wear. Not righteous acts that she herself has done, not righteous acts that she has earned, uh, not clothing that she has earned, but things that her bridegroom, the lamb who was slain, is giving to her. And so both the world and the church will receive what's coming to them. And the only question is whether we are part of the world or part of the church, whether we are the world's, the beast's harlot or we are the lamb's bride. And if we are the lamb's bride having come to the cross, then his righteous acts become our righteous acts as he adorns us for the marriage supper of the lamb. And so both the world and the church will receive what's coming to them. Secondly, Jesus will assert his rightful rule. 
Jesus will assert his rightful rule. Verse 11, Jesus comes on to the scene. Heaven opens and there is a white horse with a rider who is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and makes war. It goes down to the end and it says, he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus coming down now to assert his rightful rule over the earth. Verse 15, he, uh, so the a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. The king now is returning. And uh, it, it's somewhat natural, I guess, the interpretation that we normally get out of this because we, what we see here is very kingly military imagery. Uh, his robe is ripped in, dipped in blood. He has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And we kind of portray Revelation 19 as though Jesus is coming down uh, with these uh, eyes like a fiery flame, uh, incensed, angry, just going to wipe out everyone who's disrespected him. Uh, looking for blood. Again, that bloodthirsty picture of Jesus. And yet, if we look carefully, that's not really what we see here. Because Jesus shows up wearing a robe dipped with blood. He shows up wearing a robe dipped with blood in verse 13. And this is before anything has happened. And so two verses later, in chapter 15, it says he will trample the wine presses of the fierce anger of God. And it's not until the end of the chapter that we see anything remotely like a battle. And so the blood that is on Jesus's robe is not his enemy's blood. This is not blood that he has caused other people to spill, that he has taken a sword and slain people and been splattered with their blood. Because nothing's happened here yet. He comes out of heaven in a robe dipped in blood. And so I think it's very clear, therefore, that the blood on his robe is his own. That he is coming to assert his rightful rule. And what makes him the rightful ruler is the cross. And we've seen this throughout the book. Going back to the beginning, we've said that the focal point, the main point of revelation isn't even really the second coming, it's the cross. And even the second coming is shown in light of the cross. And that's what you see here in Revelation 19. He wore a robe dipped in blood and it is the blood that he has shed. Because that's been the theme for the past several chapters, that Christ and his church conquer by being conquered. That they conquer by giving up their own lives, by allowing their blood to be shed. Way back in chapter 12, we saw that the saints overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even to the point of death. And so we've seen, we've been prepared over the last several chapters for this idea that the Lamb conquers by being conquered. 
that he is the rightful king because he submitted even to the point of death on a cross. And so when he comes riding out of heaven in a robe dipped with blood, that blood is his. And if there's anyone else's blood who it is in addition to his, it's the martyrs. It's the saints who, who did not love their lives even to the point of death, who did claim both the, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, who gave up their own lives just as the lamb gave up his. And so he comes out of heaven in a robe dipped with blood because it is his own blood. He is deserving to rule. He is worthy to rule because of the blood he shed on the cross. And we see that as we go on. Um, and we'll look at that again more in the next point. But the sharp, the sharp sword that he carries, and we've, we've seen this early in the book as well, it's a sharp sword coming from his mouth. It's not a literal sword that he is carrying to kill people with but rather it is the word that is coming forth from his mouth. And so what we have here is imagery. We don't have literal description. And while John is most certainly using military imagery, he's using it in a way to show that the lamb fights a different kind of war, that the lamb has won by virtue of a different kind of weapon, that he is not coming down bloodthirsty, looking to kill anyone and everyone who gets in his way. But rather, he is coming down to assert the rule that is his by virtue of the cross. That he is coming down to take what began at the cross and display it for the whole world. To take what began at the cross and make it effective for all of creation. And so when we see him covered in blood, we should think of the cross and not some apocalyptic battle scene. It is by virtue of the cross that Christ conquers. And it's by virtue of the cross that we conquer. We, are conquer, we conquer by being conquered, just as the lamb conquered by being conquered. And so Jesus will assert his rightful rule, and it's a rule that is his right because of the cross. And then finally, the battle is won by his word, not his people. The battle is won by his word, not his people. This is a very important point for us to recognize because there, have been, there has been a lot of craziness in the name of Christ has been justified and pulled from Revelation 19. Because we not only see Jesus arrive as a rider on a white horse. Uh, but then we see in verse 19 that uh, the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And so here we have the, the people of God now, instead of being described as a bride, now described as an army. And being described as an army uh, has not only led to a number of hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, um, but it has also led to a lot of thinking that we need to wage war. Uh, and, and oftentimes this is taken to justify waging war according to the flesh, to use the world's weapons against the world, whether that's physical or whether that uh, is more figurative. 
But we can take this and think, well, well, I'm, I'm Christ's army. I need to fight. And yet that's not what we see going on here. Again, in verse 15, we had seen that a sharp sword came from his mouth. That it was not a sword that Jesus was literally carrying, but it was the word that was coming from his mouth. And we see that again as the passage goes on. And when you look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter where it describes this battle, notice that the, the rider's army never actually fights. There's no fighting that goes on here. There's these uh, birds that come and pick off some of the enemy. But then in verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And so they're killed not by the, the rider's army coming. And again, almost like the, the uh, end of Return of the King and Lord of the Rings, where you had this massive army coming to wage war against the forces of evil. No, the ones who are slain are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And so again, what you have here is figurative language. You have the word of God going forth and defeating the enemies of God. This is the weapon that the rider uses to defeat his enemies. He is using the word that comes from his mouth. And this gives us a totally different image of Jesus than the one we often have when it comes to Revelation 19. I think Preston Sprinkle uh, does a good job of, of bringing this point to bear. And he says, Jesus doesn't need to hack his way through enemy lines like a crazed warrior. He doesn't need to do anything but declare with cosmic cruciform authority that he has already won. The lamb has conquered. And that is what we see in Revelation 19. It is the victory that was won at the cross being declared throughout the entire created order. No longer being declared in individual lives throughout the church age, but now being declared to everyone and everything that the victory achieved at the cross has now not only been consummated, but has been brought to its completion. And it is now effective for the entire created order. That though it appeared at the cross, the lamb had been conquered. In fact, he has, he has conquered by way of the cross. And he is now conquering all of creation with the victory of the cross. It is the word of Christ being proclaimed that he has defeated sin and death on the cross that defeats all of his enemies, including sin and death. And so the battle is won by his word, not his people. And so how do we, how do we condense this down to something that, that uh, will not only be uh, something that we can intellectually hold on to for comfort, uh, certain comfort in uncertain times, uh, but actually this kind of end time passage, how does this impact our day to day? And the first, as we saw, is that any righteousness that we hope to have is not our own. It's not our own. And so those of us who are believers need to recognize that in sanctification, that our righteousness and sanctification is Christ's righteousness as well. It's not something that we've done in our own strength. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we can lord over the world as though we're righteous and they're not. We're righteous only by virtue of Christ's righteousness. 
The bright and pure linen that we are given to wear is the righteousness of Christ that we are being given to wear. Secondly, Jesus is the rightful ruler, but he's the rightful ruler by way of the cross. And so if we want to live out his rule here on earth, uh, it's not by shouting down our opponents. It's not by making sure that stores allow us to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Uh, It's not by, again, telling everyone and everyone how evil they are and never offering them the, the, the flip side of that in the gospel. If we want to proclaim Christ's rule here on earth, it is always going to be by way of the cross. It is always going to be by giving up of ourselves for the good of others, even willing to lay down our own lives. It is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, not loving our lives even to the point of death. That is how we assert assert Christ's rule here and now, which is what Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the Sermon on the Mount looks like. This is what it looks like to live out the cross, to live out the rule of Christ in our lives. It looks like being poor of spirit. It looks like mourning. It doesn't look like Uh, what we normally think of as victory because it's the way of the cross. And thirdly, the battle being won by his word and not his people means that if we do want to, again, live in that victory that Christ has won, then we need to fight with the weapons of the spirit and not the flesh. It means we give out the word. Uh, and we speak the word, we proclaim the victory of the cross. It doesn't mean we pick up literal weapons. It doesn't mean we slander. It doesn't mean we curse. It doesn't mean we do any of the things that the world does other than live the cross and preach the cross. And that is what gives us certain comfort in uncertain times. And it's what the only comfort that we can offer an uncertain world as they live in these uncertain days without any kind of sure hope or comfort. The cross is the only thing that offers that comfort and hope for any of us. Thank you for joining us for Revelation chapter 19 and join us again next week as we move on to Revelation chapter 20.